This morning in your Bibles, congregation, if you would turn to 1 John 5, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 8. After we read from that part of the inspired Word of God, we'll then turn our attention to what we believe is a faithful summary of the Word of God, the Belgic Confession. This morning we're at Article 8, and you can find that in your Forms and Prayers book on page 158. So first we read from the Word of God itself, 1 John 5, and in your Pew Bible you can find that on page 1401. You'll notice as we read through here the revelation and the emphasis on the Trinity, that there is one only God, but that in this one only God there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we read as follows, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 8, where it says, In keeping with this truth and Word of God, we believe in one God who is one single essence, in whom there are three persons really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has his own subsistence, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. It is evident, then, that the Father is not the Son, and that the Son is not the Father, and that likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons... Thus distinct are neither divided nor fused or mixed together. For the Father did not take on flesh, nor did the Spirit, but only the Son. The Father was never without His Son, nor without His Holy Spirit, since all these are equal from eternity in one and the same essence. There is neither a first nor a last, for all three are one, in truth and power and goodness and mercy." Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in John 17, verse 3, uh, we read the remarkable statement that Jesus Christ himself says as he's praying to his heavenly Father. And this, he says, is eternal life, that they may know you, 
We've said this before, and Lord willing, we'll continue to say this again and again, but eternal life, eternal life is much more than just the escape from the penalties of sin. It is that, but it's more than that. Eternal life is to know the one only true God and a knowledge that is a knowledge of fellowship, a knowledge of communion, a knowledge of a relationship, of a warm, intimate relationship. Uh, Now, in a healthy relationship, whether that be uh, in a marriage relationship or whether that be within the family context, in a healthy relationship, there ought to be a desire for a mature knowledge. I mean, you can about imagine how it would go if a young couple are dating uh, and one says to the other, well, I think I've heard enough about you. I think I've learned enough about you. Don't tell me anything more about yourself. Uh, I have a sufficient knowledge. Well, we would probably say that that relationship is near the end. Because in a healthy, mature relationship, there ought to be a desire to know more of the other person. And we say this because when we come to the doctrine or to the truth of the Trinity, at times we can think, well, well, this, this truth is too deep, too mysterious, too abstract. Even perhaps as we read what the Belgic Confession has to say, with all of its qualifications and clarifications, we might be tempted already to have our spiritual eyes kind of glaze over and to say, well, now here are the deep waters of theological knowledge. They are deep waters. But they are the most practical of theological truths. Because this is eternal life that you and I, that we together might know the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct, co-eternal, co-essential, co-equal persons, but one only true living God. And so we turn our attention together this morning to our theme, our belief concerning the truth of the Trinity. Trinity comes from a compound word, tri and unity. So it speaks of a threeness, the tri, and of a oneness, the unity. As we consider our belief concerning the truth of the Trinity, we'll notice, first of all, the importance of this truth, and then secondly, the basics of this truth, and then thirdly, the clarifications of this truth. So our belief concerning the truth of the Trinity, the importance, the basics, and the clarifications concerning this truth. First of all, then, this truth of the doctrine or the reality of the Trinity, that is, that there is one only true God, but in that one only true God, there are three distinct persons. This truth is essential to the Christian faith. It is the most fundamental truth of the Christian religion. And that's its importance, not only because it is an essential truth, but also because it is a practical truth. The doctrine, and again, when we use the word doctrine, we have this this idea of a truth or a reality concerning God that is revealed by Himself in His means of special revelation in the Word of God. Now, you will certainly find the doctrine or the reality of the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament, although somewhat more obscurely. And when we come to the New Testament, uh, we find the reality that the one only true God is three distinct persons more fully or more clearly revealed. Because it is an essential doctrine. 
You cannot have the Christian faith apart from the doctrine of the Trinity. I know when we study world religions, oftentimes we make a distinction between those religions that are a monotheistic religion, belief in one God, and typically we say, well, that includes Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And then we also speak of uh, religions that are polytheistic, believing in many gods. And perhaps you think of uh, the Hindu religion. Well, within the monotheistic camp, so to speak, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, the big distinction is that Christianity, being the one true religion, recognizes, based again on God's self-revelation within the Word of God, that one God, three persons. Three distinct subsistences, which is a technical word, but just simply means three persons who exist as individual I. Boys and girls, when you speak of your person, you use the word I. Not like the I that you see with, but the I, just the letter I. And so you might say, if you're going to tell me a story of what you did yesterday, you might say, well, well, I went here, or I went there, or I did this. That's what we mean when we say that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three eyes, so that the Father can say that I have sent the Son, and the Son can say that I have come to do the will of the Father, and the Spirit can say I have been poured out by the Father and by the Son into the hearts of the Christian and the Christian church. Now certainly in the life of a child, in the spiritual life of a child, a child can be regenerated even before they're born, even from the moment of conception. And being regenerated, they can exercise faith, but that faith will be a very immature faith. But as our faith comes to a greater level of maturity, there must and there will be an understanding and a recognition of this basic fundamental truth concerning God. One God, three distinct persons. Uh, And this is necessary. We live, sadly, but this is nothing new. We live in an age of doctrinal ignorance. And in part, uh, that is because individuals want something that they say is more practical. But doctrinal ignorance is not healthy. Because when you have individual persons, and when you have a collection of persons, when you have churches that are doctrinally weak, what that means is they basically have an elementary understanding of the Scriptures. And that's the equivalent of taking a couple who are on their first date, perhaps they've been set up by well-meaning elderly persons in an association or in a a, a congregation, and, and there they are on their first date, and they begin with, you know, those real questions, but kind of superficial questions. Uh, but if they've now been married for 20 or 40 years, and if they're still engaging at that entry-level superficial questions, you walk by perhaps their table at the restaurant And you say, this relationship is not mature and is not healthy. And so a note of encouragement that we as a congregation and as individual believers would press on in our understanding of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Because to quote 
P.Y. DeYoung again, we need more than only a bare and empty name of God floating in our brains. We need more than just some bare and empty allusion to some higher being whom we call God. We need to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because this is a practical truth. What we believe about God, what we believe about the Trinity, what we believe about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will determine and impact and even, you might say, govern how we live our lives. I just trace out one area in which this will have practical import, and that is in the area of our worship. Our corporate worship more specifically. When we come to worship, the first and the most important question that we need to answer is, whom do we worship? Let me say, perhaps somewhat bluntly, but without apology, we do not come to worship ourselves. Worship is not primarily horizontal in its view. It's not about coming into the sanctuary and complimenting ourselves or parading ourselves or showing off our gifts and our talents and all of our expertise, but rather, and this must always be continually before the spiritual mind of the congregation, we come here to worship a thrice holy God. A Holy Father and a Holy Son and a Holy Spirit. Well, then the question is, how can we worship this Holy God? As we come in our worship, we approach the Father, but we do so only through the Son. And only by the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so we approach all three persons, but we approach them in a particular manner. That we come to the Father to present Him with our worship, but we only approach the Father through the Son. Because that is the only way to enter into the Holy of Holies, the immediate presence of God Himself. And we do so by the Holy Spirit. That's why John 4, verse 24, probably the most important New Testament passage on worship, Jesus Christ says to the Samaritan woman who wanted to uh, kind of throw out the red herring in the argument. Well, where should we worship? Should we worship in Jerusalem or should we worship in Mount Gerizim? And Jesus says, don't worry about that. The Father is seeking worshipers such as will worship Him in spirit and truth. And so this doctrine, this truth, this reality of the Trinity is an essential and a practical truth. Well, what then are the basics Much could be said, much more will be said, Lord willing, in subsequent weeks as numerous articles in the Belgic Confession are devoted to the doctrine of the Trinity. This morning when we come to the basics of the truth, we just simply want to drive home two matters that we've already alluded to. And that is that there is only one divine essence. But that in this one divine essence... There are three distinct persons. So that we say, rightly, given the testimony of Scripture, there is only one God. But in this one God, there are three persons that are distinct one from another. Not not divorce one from another, but there is the Father, there is the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. So first of all, the basic truth, there is one divine essence. 
Now, and now, here again, we're going to have to be prepared to stand in a countercultural type of a way, especially with the pluralism of our society, uh, which has bought into the lie that there are all kinds of gods that are equally valid in the minds and in the construction of individual persons. Against that, we, being bound by the Scriptures, having our minds transformed by the Revelation of the Word of God, we say there is only one God. And and this was the emphasis all throughout the Scriptures. But you can think perhaps most clearly of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And now remember the context in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, is that the Lord God has led His covenantal people, those people whom by His grace and by His mercy are to live in a unique relationship of fellowship with Him. The Lord God has brought Israel out of Egypt. And Egypt was characterized by what we would call polytheism. Egypt had all kinds of gods, which really were not gods, but they had all kinds of objects of worship. They were worshiping the Nile. They were worshiping the sun. They were worshiping all types of animals. They were fulfilling what is later revealed in Romans 1. They were futile in their thoughts. And they were worshiping uh, the creation rather than the Creator. And as the Lord God delivers His people, His covenantal people, out of that polytheistic context, He says, Hear, O Israel. And what is known as the Shema is the first Hebrew word in that statement. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And I know some of you have memorized that. Some of you young people have memorized that in the Hebrew language. And that's wonderful. But make sure you know what spiritual truth is being revealed. There is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And as we walk forward by faith, day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, in an increasingly pluralistic society, let that be the heartbeat of our faith. Hear, O covenant people, hear, O church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord your God is one. That's what we mean by one divine essence. And that, of course, demands a certain solidarity of our affections. We serve only one God. Or at least we are called to serve only one God. And there are all kinds of ramifications for our practical life that flow out of this. For example, why is the institution of marriage to be between one man and one woman for life? Because it reflects something of our God. God is one, and His covenant people are one. There are not many gods that we seek to serve, but only one God. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. So all forms of idolatrous polytheism must be ruled out and must be avoided, and must be repented of, and we must search our hearts and find where those idols are fabricated and tear them down. Because there is one only God. But in this one only God, there are also three distinct persons. And there have always been three persons. And so theologians and the Christian church says it this way, the Father has never, ever 
been without the son. Now, in the, the human family, in the nuclear family, a, a father's existence always precedes the son's existence. So those of you, us, who are sons, we understand this. Our fathers lived before we lived. Their birth dates are earlier than our birth dates. But now when you talk about the Trinity, and of course you cannot have the concept of birth date because God is eternal without beginning, but the Father, the first person of the Trinity, has never existed for even a mere moment without the Son. And the Father and the Son have never existed, once again, even for a mere moment without the Holy Spirit. And that's why, and, and if you're taking notes or in your own memory, and for many of you, perhaps this would just simply be a reminder, that's why Orthodox Trinitarianism, the biblical teaching about the Trinity, insists upon what we call three co's. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-essential, and co-equal. And if you can write that upon the tablets of your heart, you'll go a long way into avoiding any type of heresy because all of the ancient Christological and Trinitarian heresies denied one of those codes. And so maybe you remember from catechism or from the Christian school instruction, uh, the Arian controversy, heresy, Arius. And what Arius said is that there was a time when the Father was and the Son was not. And maybe you remember that Athanasius, building upon the revelation of the Word of God, said, no, There has never been a time when the Father was and the Son was not. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-essential. The Father is fully divine, fully God. And the Son is fully divine, fully God. And the Holy Spirit is fully divine, fully God. Not as if the divine nature is divided up with the Father possessing 33 and a third percent and the Son 33. No, the Father is 100% divine. The Son 100% divine. The Holy Spirit 100% divine. But there are not three gods. Only one God. Now maybe a young mathematics student does that formula in his mind and says, well, that doesn't make sense. And so to quote from another one of our confessional standards, the Heidelberg Catechism, it asks the Christian, since there is only one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the answer in all of its wonderful simplicity, I understand it's not inspired, uh, but it's a wonderful answer. Why do I speak of one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. Why do I believe there is only one God, yet three distinct persons? Because that's how God has revealed Himself. That's what God has told me. And so faith rests in its object, the Word of God, the self-revelation of God, and confesses that we all believe one God, three distinct persons, each person having a unique characteristic. And we'll get into this 
uh, in future weeks. So we are brief as we begin to transition into our third point. What we mean by distinct characteristics is that there is something that is true of only the Father. And that is that He begets the Son. The Holy Spirit does not beget the Son. Now we'll talk about what begetting is in future weeks, but just know there is something true of the Father that is only true of the Father. And likewise, the Son. And that unique characteristic of the Son is that He is the only begotten. The Holy Spirit is not begotten. And the Father is not begotten. And the Holy Spirit also has a unique characteristic or attribute in that He is the one who proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. And it is by way of these distinct characteristics as revealed in Scripture that we recognize the distinctiveness of the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why, then, do we serve one only true God, three persons? Because that's the God of Scripture. That's the God of reality. But a few more clarifications in our third point. A clarification regarding equality, and then a clarification regarding worship. Regarding equality, and again, I've, I've titled this point clarifications because we've already said something to this. I just want to try as much as I'm able to make sure that we are clear. I don't think I'll ever forget the first time as a seminarian when I had to present a word of edification on the Trinity. I, I don't know, I think physically I trembled. Because you make one slip of the statement of your tongue, you fall into the camp of heresy. Now I understand uh, a failure in your communication skills. But what I mean is, this here we need to be so careful in what we say and in what we believe. Because heresy, that is false teaching, unbiblical teaching, is only a step away. And so regarding equality, all three persons are equal in their glory. So don't ever have an idea in your mind that the Father is somehow more God than the Son. Or that the Son is more God than the Holy Spirit. That's an incredibly dangerous conception. An incredibly unbiblical conception. That's why we read from 1 John 5. Notice uh, how the verse 1 begins. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that is the anointed Messiah, which must be divine, whoever with the perception of faith, whoever acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the proper object of worship. So notice again in the text of pardon what the leper did. He did not come to Jesus and say, I perceive that you are a very wise prophet. I perceive that you are someone who can give me some helpful tips to make it through the difficulties of life. I perceive that you are some type of motivational speaker. I perceive that you have some great following of a mass of persons. He came and He worshipped. Why? Because He recognized that the Son was equal in divinity and therefore a proper object of worship. And that's something we also 
must continually recognize that Jesus is not just some spiritual sage giving us a list of tips for how to live our life, but He is the eternal Son of God who together with the Father and the Spirit engage in works, in works of redemption, in works of salvation. And so for there to be Christian salvation, what do I mean by that? In order for there to be a reconciliation between us and God, we need, we need, desperately need every single aspect of the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In a former day, this was often briefly stated in this way, the Father thought salvation, the Son bought salvation, and the Holy Spirit wrought salvation. Maybe some of the mature members learned that in catechism. Maybe you learned that in catechism from P.Y.D. Young. Now, we don't use the word wrought a whole lot, but the, the statement is certainly biblical. The Father, we need the Father for our salvation because He thought in the sense of the eternal decree of election and in the appointment of the Son to be the one and only mediator. And so as Christians, we can't even imagine living life apart from the work of the Father. But then once you, and this is the beautiful thing about the Trinity, once you focus on the Father, you're quickly carried to the work of the Son. Because when the Father thought salvation, it included the Son buying salvation in this sense that He comes in the fullness of time, that He takes upon Himself our own human nature in all points like unto us with the exception of sin, so that He might lay down His life as a substitutionary sacrifice. And of course, He needs to have the divine nature in addition to the human nature in order to accomplish the victory over the death and over the grave and over sin. But then once you think about the work of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God in redemption, then you are quickly taken to the the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because who is it that comes upon the Virgin Mary to produce this miraculous conception. It is the Holy Spirit. And so this is the wonderful thing about the Trinity. Even as we distinguish the three persons, we are carried from one to the other, to the other, back to the first. In this wonderful unity of purpose, in the accomplishment, and in the application of our salvation. And that then brings us into the proper attitude and action of worship. All three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are the proper objects of our worship. So this morning we worship God. We worship the Father, we worship the Son, and we worship the Holy Spirit. But we do not worship three gods. Only one God. One God who Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has accomplished a redemption and a salvation from sin. And as we said, that is... Revealed, although somewhat obscurely, it is revealed in the Old Testament uh, in a text such as Isaiah 45, verse 21 and 22. And there in the words of Isaiah, the Lord speaks, there is no other God besides me. As we draw to a close this morning, let's be reminded of that fundamental truth. There is no other God other than the one true God of heaven and of earth. There is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. Now notice those two. The one true God is a just God. Also a Savior. 
How can both of those truths be true? Only through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. So that God is just. His holiness will be satisfied as His righteousness is executed in the punishment of sin. But He's also a Savior and that He provides a mediator. The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there comes the great call of the Gospel. There is none beside Me. Look to Me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. And so the unity of God, but also the plurality of persons, stands behind, you might say, the the great and the glorious gospel proclamation to sinners such as you and such as I. And let everyone know this morning there is only one God, and that God is a just God, but also a Savior. In and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is salvation for all who will look Look in the act of faith like the leper did. The leper obviously looked. And when he looked, he saw. And he saw Jesus Christ and he came. And he cried out. He desired to be made whole. He recognized the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how that that divinity in the person of Jesus Christ was able to cleanse him from all sin. And so here we are talking about the Trinity, but also calling sinners to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you and I are the leper. And so the question is, do you glorify? Do you worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because there is nothing that exalts the Father and the Spirit more than faith in the Son. You want to know how to please the Father? It begins with this. Think of what the Father said as Jesus Christ received baptism. And as the Spirit came upon Him, He proclaims, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Listen to Him. Repent of your sins before Him. Believe on Him. And you will be saved. And you will know eternal life. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.